then flip back, you'll get to Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. That's where we're going to be tonight. 32 pages is the official report for at least one Bible in the room. All right. This book has two chapters. And my Bible, and this is a big print Bible, is on one page. And so I thought, this is my last minor prophet class to teach in this quarter. Uh, and I don't know what it says that I have 12 pages of notes as opposed to 5 or 6 like I normally do. But uh, I think part of that is is uh, I, the lighting gets darker in here. And so the font has had to increase on, on my page. And uh, I think that's part of it. Haggai is a two-chapter book. It is it constitutes a change in our study in the prophets. Some of our prophets go back to the early part of the divided kingdom, our minor prophets, when both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom existed. And in that, I did the introduction class. There are a few prophets that spoke uh, or that wrote their writing in the ninth century B.C. Anybody know what century that was? The ninth century would be what years? This is to exercise your B.C. knowledge. The 800s. All right, so we're going to go ninth century, then eighth century, uh, and in the eighth century, we're going to see the southern kingdom disappear. There's only going to be Judah, the southern kingdom, but they've not yet gone into captivity. And so you've got prophets who are coming along and they're either writing to enemies of God or they're writing to the nation of Judah and urging them not to uh, persist in sin so as to avoid captivity. Uh, we finally get to a point to where the prophet, and that's where we were with Habakkuk, who's saying it is an inevitability, you're going to go into captivity. Uh, Habakkuk is struggling as to why God could use uh, an, an enemy, a wicked people like the Babylonians, and Gary did a great job with that last week. It's very simple for the rest of the class. There's only one nation existent, and that's the nation of Judah. But not only that, but these three are what we would call post-exilic books. Anybody want to take a stab at what that 10-cent word means? Post-exilic. Let's break it down. Post, after, exile. All right, so it's right there in, in the term itself. So these are three books that are written after the people of God come back from Babylonian captivity. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Now, let's just take a moment to read... Uh, Haggai chapter 1. I'm going to read the first chapter first uh, because it will help us with some of our introductory material. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come, that the time that the house of the Lord should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to, to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it, became, it came to little. When you 
bring it home, I blow it away. Why declares the Lord of hosts because of my house that lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house? Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all the remnant, all the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. All right, as we read in this chapter, and we are going to take, it's only two chapters, we're going to read both the chapters. When you come to the beginning of the book, what do you see of significance in helping us to understand something about Joshua, uh, of Haggai the man. Give me some biographical data about him. You're exactly right. There's no biographical data about him. That's impressive. I've never had the whole class give the right answer together. What do, I, what do we see with Haggai? Okay, we know he's a prophet. What else do we get? What other indication do we have about him? Okay, we know to whom he is prophesying, and that's going to help us uh, with giving us a date for the book. What else? What else do you see about him and his, his prophecy that might give us a flavor of the book or help us to understand something about it? What does it say in verse 2? At right, the very beginning of verse 2. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Thus what? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Um, you have uh, throughout the book, look at chapter 2 and verse 6 and there's other places, where you have Haggai saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. What does that indicate to us? He's, he is claiming a divine source in his message. God spoke through him. But there, Go ahead. Repeatedly. But there is something that's unusual about Haggai and how he writes that, that's unique to him. What is, if Haggai's not concerned about who his daddy is, what is he concerned about? Okay, he's concerned about where the message is coming from. Even on the secular plane, what's, what is it, an obsession with him? You'll see it in chapter 1 and verse 1, chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 10 and chapter 2 and verse 20. Okay, the date. He is, he's a number nerd. He, he, likes, he wants you to know exactly when it is that he's writing. And that's very interesting because it's going to help us to date the book exactly. The scholars have taken the, uh, the reference to Darius Histaspis, um, who we'll uh, talk more about here in just a moment, uh, and between all the material that we have that date, that all, he, he is one of the better known Old Testament figures the Bible speaks about that archaeologists have discovered about. There are all, I can tell you, all these different places. He wrote this tablet in three different languages that was found on Mount Behustin uh, that gives some indication of the date. There were some 
uh, clay cuneiform tablets that were found in Persepolis that help us to date it. There's a, a personal letter from Darius to a guy named Serratus that helps us to date. So we have, we have all these precise markers so we know exactly when Darius does his reign. It's 522 to 486 B.C. And so the scholars have taken a kind of an old school way um, Haggai likes the Jewish way of reckoning time, so he's not reckoning like Babylonians do. And as a result of that, scholars tell us that Haggai began his prophecy on August 29th, 520 B.C. I don't know. I'm sure there are other places where they will get that's precise, but that's uh, Haggai helps us with that. He gives us all of these dates uh, that help us to understand something more about that. Um, there are, as I mentioned a moment ago, three post-exilic prophets. Haggai's first in order. He's two months before Zechariah. We know this, if you just want to write this in your notes. Between Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1 and Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1, they both give the date of their uh, prophecy. Zechariah's is two months later. Malachi is going to be uh, toward uh, uh, several decades after this. But Haggai is writing, and we don't know even... With the obscurity of Haggai, whether he was born in Judah or if he was born in Babylon. We don't know uh, if he was born before they went into captivity, so we don't know his age. But we know uh, something about the style of his writing. We've already mentioned that he says several times my message came from God. The entire book of Haggai is sermons. Now, I find it remarkable. I taught the young adults uh, the summer quarter last year, and we taught the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is one long sermon. The book of Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, is one long oracle or sermon. The book of Hebrews is one long sermon. It's, it is an exhortation, Hebrews 13 and verse 22. And the book of Haggai, while it's not one long sermon, it contains in its two chapters four sermons. So if you want a breakdown of the book, that's how you can remember this. Um, before I get to that, let me kind of give you a, a different breakdown. In chapter 1, you mostly have, well, let me just take a moment to give you the chapter 1 and chapter 2 with that. Um, the first sermon in chapter 1 mostly focuses on the people's work. Okay, So if you want to remember that, the people's work is detailed in what they're not doing and then what they do in chapter 1. In chapter 2, you have uh, the, the second, third, and fourth sermons. And this deals more with God's work. So if you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1 is a rebuke verse 1 through verse 11, and then it's an assurance from God in verse 12 through 15. After they repent and they, they get back to, to work, then God reassures them. In the second chapter, the second sermon is an encouragement. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. The third sermon is a blessing. Verse 10 through 19. And the final sermon is a promise. In chapter 2, verse 20, through verse 23. Alright, so let's set the background on these sermons and why he's preaching it. Cyrus the Great is God's instrument to allow the people of God to come back to the land. In understanding the minor prophets, everything kind of centers in some way on the Babylonian captivity. 
the nation had divided. They had turned away from God. And so God brings two enemies to punish the people because they had turned away from him. The Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom. They're gone. The southern kingdom is different. Why is the southern kingdom different? It's where Jesus is coming from. Do you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a promise made to David that he was always going to have one to sit on his throne. That's going to kind of come into play in the book of Haggai. And so God's made a promise that he's going to preserve David's line. And through that, the Messiah is oftentimes called what? The son of who? David. All right, so this captivity has taken place. Nebuchadnezzar has come in, and what does Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, what does he do in taking the people of God up into Babylon? What else does he do? Okay, he destroys the city, he destroys the temple, and he takes the people of God up into captivity in three different waves. Daniel's in the first wave, Ezekiel's in the second wave, and then the poor and others and craftsmen go in in the third wave. So the temple's destroyed, the people have come back into their land, and God wants them to restore things. So we've talked about this before, they needed to restore the law, that's what Ezra is going to do. They need to restore the wall around Jerusalem, who leads that? Anybody know? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And then they've got to restore the temple. Whose job is that? It begins with Ezra. All right, so Ezra starts it. They lay the foundation. uh, And then the Samaritans come along. In about two years, they start in 536. In two years, the Samaritans come along and they frustrate the people and they, they intimidate them and they stop working on the temple. And for 14 years, they're walking through the city of Jerusalem They're rebuilding their houses. They're settling into their land. And uh, there's the temple unfinished. Ezra 6 and verse 14 says that God uses two prophets to stir up the hearts of the people and to get them back to working on the temple. It's Haggai and it's Zechariah. It's their focus, it's their work to get the people back busy doing the, the work of God. So Haggai, he is preaching... First, to say, you guys ain't doing it. Get to work. And then from that point on, from verse 12 of chapter 1 to the end, chapter 2 and verse 23, he is encouraging them as they have resumed their work. So the book of Haggai begins with a problem. The problem is the people are not building the house. And it ends with a promise. And the promise is God is saying to Zerubbabel, I have chosen you. It's a very interesting um, statement that he makes, and it's going to really help us to, to kind of dig into that. Um, that being the case, let's look through the book really quick. We've already read chapter 1, and the first sermon is make God's temple, God's house, the priority. Uh, and in order to preach that sermon, and he doesn't outline it this way, but I think this is a, a logical outline. Point number one is Haggai has to call attention to the issue. And what is the issue according to verses 1 through 4? Okay? They're indifferent. They've ignored God. They've they've ignored the work that they they have to do. Um, And what's the reason behind it? Okay. So God's saying, I want you to do my work. They're doing their own work. So how might we describe that? Selfish. Selfish. Motives are, say motives are, 
priorities. Their priorities are wrong. They're self-centered and self-absorbed in what they're doing. And so they're given plenty of thought in Haggai's day, but they're not giving thought to God's work. You know, it's not like we don't have priorities in our lives. All of us do, right? But sometimes what should be first is not what is first. And that's the problem in Haggai's day. They're putting things first, but they're not putting the right things first. Um, And so, as Kevin said, it's the sin of improper priorities. And it shows itself in at least three ways in Haggai's day. If you go down to to verse 2, what it says, if you'll notice again, it says, The time has not come, the time that the house of the Lord should be rebuilt. What are they saying? What is that? Okay. Procrastination. The problem is not that they weren't going to do it. They're just not going to do it right now. Thankfully, we're so enlightened in 21st century America, that, we, especially in, among God's people, that we don't do that anymore, right? We don't procrastinate. Think about this. We have serious marital issues, but we put off dealing with it. We know that we need to be more faithful and we need to be more generous in our giving, but we put it off changing. We know we need more Bible class teachers, we need more soul winners, we need more deacons, but we can't do it now. We have a sin problem, we have an addiction that's eating us alive, and we'll deal with it later. You see, there's a timeless tendency that Haggai's peers are struggling with. There's so much to juggle in their lives, but what they've done is is they've dropped the ball that has written on it God and His work. And they're juggling their own things. And they'll say, I'm going to pick that up later. I'm going to do that. You know, James talks about that in James 4, 13 and 14. He says, go to now you that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas what? You know not what is tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so he addresses the problem that has led to their misplaced priorities in this sermon. And the first problem is procrastination. The second problem is in verse 3 and 4. What's the problem? Materialism. They're not sacrificing for God. They had faith and they had foresight. And I want you not to lose sight of this fact. They had enough faith to leave their house, to re-inhabit and repopulate the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. Uh, That was no small task. Everybody had that opportunity, but according to the book of Ezra, only 50,000 people took up that opportunity that Cyrus gave them and came back to their homeland. Now, you may say, well, everybody wants to go back home. But their home for the last 70 years, almost the last century, was Babylon. And so they had turned loose. They had a good start. And maybe that tells us something about the kind of good heart these people have. Because I don't want you to lose sight of the fact these folks have a good heart. It's going to be proven when we get down to verse 12. But what can happen even in a good heart is is that life comes along and I get distracted and other things become more important. That's why we have a priority problem. It causes me to procrastinate. It also causes me to make material things more important. And how do we know material things are more important to the people? What? Huh? Okay, and what are they doing? Look at verse 4. They're building their own houses, and how are they building them? Tiny homes with very basic exteriors. So the, the, that idea of the paneled houses, you, you, maybe your version says sealed houses. Um, we see that other times in the Old Testament. 
Before they go into exile, the wealthy were building their houses and they were... So think of cedar paneling. It, it may not seem like a big deal now, but it would have been some of the finest of its time. And it was a sign of opulence. In fact, when Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, he embellishes it. He improves its, its appearance and its worth by using the, the, these panels, these seals... And so they've come back, they've made a great decision to come back to their own homeland, and they're, they have the faith to do that, but they're, they're, they're settling into a materialistic lifestyle. And Haggai addresses that. And of course the New Testament tells us that material things can be a distraction to us, it can, it can uh, ruin our faith. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10 um, the love of money is the root of all sorts of kinds of evil. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Take heed and beware of covetousness or greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he has. So Haggai is trying to stir them up. That's the language of the book. And to stir them up, to get their priorities where it needs to be, he says, look, number one, stop procrastinating. Number two, make me more important than material things. And then the third is just kind of, the result of all of this, their improper priorities was seen in their neglect. Um, there's a good way for me to measure where God is in my life. How much time, how much money, how much energy, and how much heart do I have left for him when I'm done with everything else that's in my life? So Haggai is, is getting them to stop and to ask themselves about their priorities and we need to do that. We always need to ask ourselves, is God in proper place in my life? So that's what Haggai asks. Haggai number two asks them to consider where they are. First question in the Bible, do you know what it was? Genesis 3 verse 9, God asks Adam, where are you? You know, a lot of us have 20-20 vision when it comes to our neighbor's sins. And we're nearly blind when it comes to our own. I think that's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, don't use a fine tooth comb on one another and a toothless comb on yourself. God says to elders in Acts 20, verse 28, take heed unto yourselves and unto the flock. And so preachers don't get smug. He says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, pay attention to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. You know, Nathan comes and pays David a visit. You remember that in 2 Samuel? And he tells him a story about more than flocks and herds. It's about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has all these flocks and herds. And there's this poor man. And he has one ewe lamb that he saves up his money and he buys. And it eats off of his plate. It drinks out of his cup. It sleeps on his chest. It's like a daughter to him. And then uh, the rich man has a stranger that comes his way. And instead of pulling one out of his own flocks and his own herds... The rich man goes and he takes that poor man's lamb. How wise, of course, for Nathan to use this illustration with David, a shepherd king. And what's David's response to that? Out, he's outraged, killing. And of course, Nathan says, you're the man. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, you have the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Rome. And he goes through this long list of sins that... Uh, the Gentiles were guilty of. I mean, it's a laundry list of all these horrible things. And then he turns to the Jews. You know the first thing he says in Romans 2 and verse 1? You are without excuse. In other words, he's saying you are the man. 
So what Haggai is saying when he says to consider your ways, he's saying you are the man. You are without excuse. And so he asked them to consider, and it's always a valuable exercise for us to engage in. It's for me to ask myself, in relationship to God, especially as it concerns my priorities, where am I? Am I the man? Am I the one who is living without excuse? And there's more to be said about that, uh, to, to gauge the, the priorities that are, are, are uh, out of whack there. But I want you to notice that he lays that out there for them. And then how did the people respond? After this really direct, straightforward lesson on priorities. I think it's one of the most exciting verses in all the Bible. Haggai preaches the sermon. And I know Jonah has uh, 100% of a response from the people of Nineveh. How about Haggai? How does, it, how does it work for his sermon? What does verse 12 tell us? What, what more can you ask for? They came and did work in the house of the Lord. What was Haggai's objective in his lesson? Go, bring, build, do the work. And the book of Haggai says that they did. You know, Haggai's going to make the point here in Haggai chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, that when in, one is in sin, man is miserable and he's filthy. But away from the power of sin in the light, we find beauty and peace. We have fellowship with God and with each other. And so this exciting pivot point takes place when Haggai has preached this lesson and the people who have been guilty of misplaced priorities, Haggai preaches and then. And then number one, it says that they obeyed. Verse 12. Now, this seems to preview what takes place. The work doesn't begin until verse 14. But you know why this is so significant? Where does obedience begin? Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 17, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching that was delivered unto you. After Haggai has spoken straight into their heart, their hearts are convicted and they're ready to do God's will. And so even though they've not picked up the, the tools to get back to work on the, the temple, their resolve is there. Their heart is engaged. And so he can say they obey. They've accepted it. They've internalized it. And they're ready to do it. Number two, Haggai preaches and then they show reverence for God. Verse 12. They believed his message that God had stopped blessing them because of their disobedience. There's a change of heart. It leads them to be reverent and to respect God's power. Again, when we revere God, we're going to honor him. Haggai preaches and then their spirits are stirred. Verse 14, they're roused, they're stimulated, they're motivated by the word of God. And verse 14, Haggai preaches and they get to work quickly. Verse 14, this is the logical result of all that we've seen and that's action. They properly prioritize. Haggai says they come and they work on the house of the Lord. Haggai preached a hard sermon, but it brought restoration and revival. It shows us we can turn things around in our lives. That we can change. We don't have to stay on this hamster wheel making no progress. Sometimes we use up all this energy plugging up the holes in our boat when we need to get into a different boat. And that's what Haggai's saying is change boats. Now from here... The message is different. Haggai says get to work. The people get to work. It makes sense that Haggai's not going to come along now and say, all right, guys, get to work. Is that what they need now? 
They've responded. They're doing the work. When you respond and you're doing the very best that you can, what should the message then be? Keep on doing it. I'm with you. What else? Beyond the doing of the task right now. I need a promise. I need encouragement in my present. And I need hope for tomorrow. And that's the rest of the book of Haggai. That's the next three sermons. So I called this, you see on the top of your sheet, Haggai's sermon series on the temple. So he preaches a four-part series. So I guess there's biblical precedence for preachers preaching a sermon series, I guess. I, I don't, we don't do that very much, but I think it's good. So here's the second sermon. Renewing your enthusiasm for the work. The work is going to continue in building the temple. All right, so we notice maybe three things in that particular sermon that he has to tell them. Number one, don't be discouraged. All right, so let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? So in his audience, who's there? The people who saw the first temple. So people who are going to have to be at least 70 years old, who can look back and they can, or if they maybe went a little later, it could have been 60-something years, but many decades, well over a half a century, and they remember back to when the temple was, was uh, stood before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 586 B.C. So now we're 520, so that's 66 years exactly. So there are folks who could remember that temple before. And what were they saying as they're rebuilding this new temple? which, by the way, doesn't have near the splendor, near the opulence. It's not near as grand as the other one. I don't, and I don't know, maybe this is a ter- terrible analogy. Um, I think WKU's got a pretty nice stadium. But let's say it, it got destroyed. And they came back and they had a field that, that is much lesser than any kind of high school football field. Uh, and maybe there's a capacity for 1,000 people all around. And if you could remember the days when that other stadium stood, how would you feel about the new facility? I mean, you could just, you want to post it all over social media how great it is, right? So this is them, except this is their place where God's presence is. This is the temple in its grandeur that Solomon had built that was so opulent and ornate. And now they're in this project and it looks so plain. They're discouraged. Now, how might that apply to how we might look at life today. It's not temples. How many of you, and I don't remember it, because it was well before my time, and that's not to be ugly to any of you, but sometimes I have to say that. How many of you remember those glorious 50s when the church was just blowing up and baptizing hundreds of people every day? Remember that? And... We're not quite doing that today, are we? Is it easy to get discouraged? Now, I'm not saying that we're remembering that perfectly like it really was. But it can be that we look back to those glory days and we focus on that. What's the problem with looking back and seeing that as opposed to getting to work? What purpose does it serve? 
So that's what Haggai is trying to encourage them to do. Nostalgia has never conducted a Bible study. And nostalgia has never gotten anybody into the baptistry. And when we look back to our past, it doesn't make us live better today. So what led to the glory of Solomon's temple? And what led to the successes to whatever degree that there was in the 1950s? What powered that? What led to that? Power of God's word and the providence of God. Question is, do we still have those resources today? And so that being the case, we shouldn't be discouraged. Because we have the potential to do the same thing. The second thing he tells them is, uh, be steadfast and fearless. Verse 4 and 5, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding with you. So God is telling us, I'm with you. The same promise that he gives us today And there's a beautiful combination here. There's an admonition, and then there's a promise. The admonition he gives three times. He says, take courage. You'll find it three times in that little short uh, uh, bit of text. And then he says, do not fear. And so he's got to tell him, look, get over the the fear and the, the intimidation. And then the other side of that is, the reason that you don't have to fear is because I'm with you and my spirit is abiding among you. When we partner with God, we're working with perfection. And we're working with a perfect power and a perfect presence. And then he tells them, be optimistic in verse 6 through verse 9. If you'll notice here, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, so he's asking them to be optimistic, to look to the future, and to hope for what's going to be. Don't be discouraged by what is or what was. Now, I'm going to save this till the very end of class. There's something very neat that's going on here in verse uh, 6 through 9. Um But he does, I want you to note four things that he tells them that he's going to do. He tells them, I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, and the the dry land and the sea. Number two, I'm going to shake all the nations. Number three, I'm going to fill this house with glory. And number four, I will bring peace in this place. From a physical standpoint, that makes sense. God owns everything on this earth, and so he can supply everything they need. Psalm chapter 50 and verse 12. He had provided silver and gold for the first temple when it was built, but there's a more important sense in which the latter glory of the temple is going to be greater than the former. It's not about a church building. It's about the Christ. This is one of the places where Christ shows up in the book of Haggai. And you think about this glory that's going to be greater in the latter days that wasn't present now, nor had it ever been present. He says that there was a glory before when I shook the heavens and the earth. Do you know when that was? When did God shake the heavens and the earth? When he demonstrated his glory in revealing himself. Now, In the past. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. All right, so we have that glory that appears there. He says, but there's going to be a greater glory. So that is fulfilled in Christ. When Christ comes, what does John say in John 1 and verse 14? That God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that glory shows itself in the temple. Jesus is presented in that temple that's being spoken of here. In uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 29, Jesus drives the money changers from that temple. Uh, John chapter 2 and verse 15, Jesus teaches in that temple. Luke chapter 21 and verse 37, and Jesus makes that temple of no use anymore through his death, burial, and resurrection. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 through 16. That's why this is the one messianic prophecy in the book of Haggai and it pulls back to this passage and it applies it to Christ and his church. So Haggai right here is talking about not just the work that they're doing on this temple. That it is going to be better. You're going to finish it. It's going to serve its purpose. But you're building for something far better because one of these days through the descendants that are to come that your descendant's going to come, the Messiah that you've been waiting for all this time, and he's going to shake the earth like it's never been before, and the heavens, and all of this. It's going to reach all the nations. It's going to be that powerful. And we'll say more about that at the very, very end. Third sermon. Blessings to come when the temple is done. For the sake of time, let's just look at this very quickly. There's an illustration about defilement in verse 11 through 13. And basically, here's how the illustration works. If the priest is holy and some food gets into his garment, does the food become holy? But if a priest, or anyone else for that matter, is clean and they touch a corpse, what happens no matter who they are? They're unclean. Can you pass along holiness? Can you transfer holiness to others? How about defilement? Yes, you can. All right, and so he's, and I think we can appreciate an application from that. Um, I remember when I was a teenager, this illustration was used, and I don't have time to use it now. I don't know who I would use. But it always involves a big guy and a small girl and a chair. Y'all ever seen that done before? Where you have the big guy who is in the chair, and he's trying to pull the girl up into the chair. I don't know if he's a weightlifter football player that works you know, pr- pretty well, but he does it with some difficulty, pulling them up. Then you ask the little girl on the ground to pull the guy out of the chair. How easily does she do that? Typically pretty easy. Because he can, he can try to pull up his muscles as much as he can. He can't work against gravity. And the point of that illustration, as I recall it, was it's a lot easier to be pulled down than it is to pull someone up. And so Haggai is illustrating how... This defilement can come and so easily uh, cause uh, us to, to be pulled down into that. And so that's what had happened in their past. They'd been defiled. I don't think the defilement was idolatry. I think the defilement was their uh, indifference that he had dealt with. And so that's the application of the point. That what you're doing is you are taking care of your own business and you're not doing the work of the Lord. And that is defiling. The cause of the defilement is in verse 15 through 17 uh, where Haggai is speaking there and says, But now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one uh, came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. 
And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you in every work of your hand with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed yet in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, is not, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Basically, he's saying... Before, you were not being blessed because you're not working in my house. Now you are, and things are going to be different. And the cure for defilement is seen there in verse 18 and 19. Uh, in doing the work, God was going to bless them. He's a man of, he is a being of his, of his word. And then the fourth sermon, the shaken kingdoms and the unshaken kingdom. We'll deal with that in just a moment, but this is not just about Zerubbabel. This is about Zerubbabel's descendant. So let's look at the major themes. Major themes include seek first the kingdom of God. That's chapter 1. We don't put God first when we practice disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Chapter 1 and verse 2. Felix says, when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. We, we put personal comfort before God's work. We don't put God first. And so that's the theme of the book of uh, Haggai is seek first the kingdom of God. Another theme of Haggai is the power of God's word. Chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. The change that takes place in Haggai's audience after that sermon is incredible. Any of you guys remember when Joe Namath promised that the Jets were going to beat the Colts in the Super Bowl? I don't know if you remember that some of the details. Namath was intoxicated. And a Colts fan kind of got in his face and said, you have no chance to win. And what does Namath do? He famously guarantees there's going to be a, a win. Uh, and uh, it happens. There were 18-point underdogs. They win by nine points. Um, we do understand, right, that there was nothing. Things kind of fell their way. It wasn't like Namath was a prophet and he knew that this was going to take place. He, if he had gotten it wrong, as a lot of guys do, then we'd never remember this anecdote. Also, by the way, before I was born. Um, the power behind Haggai's message is one that could be trusted. And that power not only exists, but it changes hearts and lives. Number three, obedience requires strength, but brings blessings. That's the point of chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Number four, God blesses his chosen ones. Chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. All right, so the New Testament use of the book of Haggai. I've already mentioned that chapter 2, verse 6 and chapter uh, 2, verse 21 are, quotate, are quoted in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. Uh, particularly this part of uh, Haggai 2, 6 and 21 is once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth the Hebrews writer applies that to the church, the kingdom that shall never be destroyed in verse 28. Uh, and that leads us to our last uh, point, and that's we want to see Christ in the book of Haggai. Haggai is talking about the messianic age in chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. God is going to shake the world once more like he once did at Sinai. He's going to shake it once again, literally that means once for all, when Christ came, they had a coming that was more glorious than even Sinai was. The shaking would be in a little while. We're only a few hundred years 
before the Messiah comes. The shaking would involve the whole universe. Perhaps that's an allusion to the, the sun being dark when Jesus hangs on the cross. And the earthquake when Jesus comes out of the tomb. But I think it's even more than that. With the beginning of the gospel on the day of Pentecost, there's a moral and there's a spiritual shaking that occurs. He's also going to shake all the nations. Do you remember in the second missionary journey, Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, uh, they've come to Thessalonica and the, the complaint is made, these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. What Haggai is pointing to is very obviously messianic. He's saying this is going to happen. It's going to be so glorious. But he's talking to Zerubbabel. What's the point? Why is Zerubbabel? What significance does Zerubbabel have? Because Zerubbabel is not a big shot on the world stage. He's not a king. Judah doesn't own their own land. Who owns the nation of Judah when the book of Haggai is written? The Persians. And when the Persians let go, who's going to have it? The Greeks. And after the Greeks, the Romans. So this isn't talking about that. What's Zerubbabel's significance? He says some things about that. Let me just give it to you. In that day, my servant, I will make you a signet ring, and I have chosen you. I suggest to you that go to Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, Look in the genealogies. And there's Zerubbabel. Huh? He's a son of David, but he's also a son of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in the genealogies. And so Zerubbabel is going to be a part of, his glory is going to come in the fact that the Messiah is going to come from him. There's Haggai in a little less than a nutshell or more. All right, thank you very much.